Today's reading is taken from Romans chapter 8, verses 5 to 11, which is found on pages, page 1134, the Church Bibles. Romans 8, 5 to 11. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of God, of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his Spirit who lives in you. Amen. Thank you, Logan. Thank you so much for reading that passage from the middle of Romans chapter 8. As you know, uh, during the course of our Sunday service, Sunday morning services, uh, most of the time we are working through Paul's letter to the Romans, and we are now in the midst of chapter 8, a a remarkable and significant part uh, of God's word. But um, we need help to understand the word rightly, so let's pray to God uh, and ask him for that help. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for all of it, all 66 books in it. But Heavenly Father, thank you that this morning we have the opportunity to look at this letter from Paul to the church in Rome. Heavenly Father, thank you for all that we can draw from it this morning. Heavenly Father, help us to pick up those things from this passage which are going to be particularly helpful, particularly relevant, uh, particularly significant for us as we seek to live for you day by day. Amen. Amen. Uh, This morning, as I said, we are continuing to think about Paul's letter to the Romans. Um, If you can think back to what we have been uh, discovering in Romans over the last few weeks, you'll remember that in chapter 6, Paul explained, among other things, that we can really only serve one of two masters, uh, one that leads to death and bondage, the other one which leads to life and freedom. Uh, Yet in chapter 7, Paul articulates the reality that all Christians face to a greater or lesser extent, that even though we've been justified by faith in Jesus and faith in his death, uh, we still find it a struggle to resist sin. Sin seems still to have, well, quite an influence over our day-to-day lives, and it can seem so much easier to do what is wrong uh, than to do what we, we know to be right. And last Sunday, Don drew our attention to the great truth, as it is put in verse 1 of chapter 8, that um, even though we find it a struggle and we find it difficult, and uh, often we're not terribly successful in resisting sin, uh, nonetheless, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We've been set free from the law of sin and death. In other words, we've been rescued 
from the consequences of our sins. Not just the sins that we committed ages ago, but the sins that we commit day by day. Our rejection of God, our turning away from his good purpose in our lives. We're no longer facing God's condemnation. And this is a continuous promise that we have. We may still struggle with sin. We may still give way to it. But despite despite that, God's forgiveness is still there for us. Now, this is tremendous news, isn't it? But is this all that can be said? I mean, do we just have to resign ourselves to the fact that um, we're going to have just put, have to put up with this struggle with sin? Day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, and, and wait for heaven. Bit dispiriting when you put it that way, isn't it? Well, the good news is that there is more that can be said. It is critically important for us to know that as believers in Jesus, God's forgiveness is there for us. I guess that's why he puts it there first. But there is so much to say, because as well as a secure future in eternity, for this life, we have the promise of God's help in our day-to-day struggles. There was a clue that there's more to say right at the end of our reading last Sunday in verse 4 when Paul speaks about people who've put their trust in Jesus as being people who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And in this section, Paul takes this idea forward. But in a sense, he starts by going back and reminding us of the kind of places where sin takes us. In this sort of middle section of of Romans, Paul often illustrates what he's trying to say by setting up a contrast. Again, if you go back to the second half of chapter 6, you'll remember he contrasts having sin as your master with having righteousness as your master. And in this section, he's setting up a similar contrast. As it said in verse 4, we can either live according to the flesh or we can live according to the spirit. But, you know, before we go any further, I guess we need just to take a moment to understand what Paul is talking about when he uses this word flesh, which is a translation of the Greek word sarks. Down through the centuries, Paul's use of this word has been much misunderstood and given rise to the idea that Christianity in general, and Paul in particular, believes that the body and things linked to the body, like uh, physical enjoyment, are intrinsically bad and best avoided. In some Christians, it's been misunderstood, and given rise to people claiming that the only valid lifestyle is one of asceticism. That is extreme self-denial, severe self-discipline, involving all sorts of indulgence in the belief that in some way this will help you focus on God more efficiently and more effectively. But this misunderstanding has also been used by critics of Christianity as a stick to beat Christians over the head with. Uh, Last Sunday, I was listening to Will Self, the, the author and broadcaster, who, among other things, was arguing that Judaism and Christianity had a, and this was a quote, a spiritual disgust for the incarnate. In other words, that they had a spiritual disgust for things linked and related uh, to the body. 
And you've probably come across this idea uh, from time to time. Now, before we leave what Mr. Self said, it's perhaps worth saying that people who who criticize Christianity on these grounds have obviously not read the Bible all that closely. The Bible's not a killjoy's manual. Far from rejecting physical pleasure and physical enjoyment, the Bible teaches clearly that within an appropriate and right framework, enjoying the good things of life is one of God's blessings. Obviously, uh, physical pleasures and physical enjoyment can be abused and misused, but the Bible sets a framework wherein these things can be gloried in and enjoyed and taken pleasure in. And yet this idea keeps on knocking around that physical enjoyment is in somehow not the best way to live. The trouble is that the word that we have translated in English flesh, like many words, means different things depending on the context. Let me give you an example of that. Who remembers what day it was last Thursday? You can reply. Valentine's Day, and I hope you've got a Valentine's card. Commiserations if uh, if someone special in your life forgot all about it. And of course, you will have seen the whole country plastered with hearts, didn't you? But what does the word heart mean? Well, if somebody came up to you and told you that they wanted to tell you about a heart condition, I guess you would brace yourself to listen to somebody talking to you about a serious medical condition that they were suffering from. And you'd probably be bracing yourself to get far more medical detail than, frankly, you really wanted to know. But on the other hand, if someone came up to you and said that they wanted to talk to you about an affair of the heart, would your first thought be that they're going to talk to you about open heart surgery? I think not. You'd be bracing yourself, but in a different way, to listen to what is probably going to be a sad story of unrequited love and emotional turmoil. Same word, heart. But in different contexts, it means something completely different. And it's exactly the same thing that's happening with Paul's use of this word flesh. Depending on the context, it means something different. So that, for instance, sometimes Paul will talk about flesh, and what he literally means is the stuff that our bodies are made of. At other times, he will sometimes use a phrase like flesh and blood. And what he's actually talking about is perhaps mankind in general, or perhaps a particular group of people that he's referring to. But often, in the case of Paul, when he uses the word flesh, he's talking about, he's talking about, well, it's really a shorthand for what you might call natural human inclinations and attitudes. Human nature, if you like. And when he's talking about flesh in this context, it's not so much talking about the body as talking about the mind. I mean, if you look at verses 5 to 8, you'll see that Paul uses the word mind five times in a very short space of time. You know, Paul is not really thinking when he uses the word flesh about bodily instincts and inclinations, although obviously that's part of it, as the things that we are naturally inclined to value the things that we naturally are inclined to take for granted, our natural attitudes and prejudices, the way we naturally respond to the things that happen around about us. 
But more fundamentally, even than that, it represents an attitude towards God and a desire to live independently of him. A desire instead of trusting in God, to trust in ourselves. Imagining that we can secure our own righteousness, our own approval by God, independently of what God has done. And instead depending on our own efforts. And that's the contrast that Paul is making here. It's between living according to our our natural nature, our natural sinful nature. Indeed, some translations of the New Testament sometimes use a term like sinful nature to translate the word flesh in this kind of context. Or living according to the Spirit. It's about our focus. It's about what we're following or who we're following. This has been quite a long digression. Apologies for that. And we need to get back to what Paul is saying. We need to get back to what Paul is saying about where the flesh, where our unnatural sinful nature takes us. And the answer is nowhere good. If you look at verses 5 to 8, you'll see that Paul identifies where our natural human nature will naturally take it. We may go there at different speeds. And we may go there in different ways, but there is a direction of travel. There is a a direction in which the current will will naturally take us. In verse 5, for instance, he tells us that in our natural state, we have our mind set on what the flesh desires. Now, of course, he doesn't actually unpack what he means by that here in this part of Romans. But if you go to some of his other letters, and in particular his letter to the Galatians, you'll actually get an indication of the sort of things he's talking about when he's talking about what the flesh desires. If you go to Galatians chapter 5 and from verse 19, for instance, he writes this. The acts of the flesh are obvious. And he goes on to give a list. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery. Idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. It's quite a variety. I mean, I suppose some of them you would describe as as gross behavior. Others of them perhaps more socially acceptable. Now, Paul is obviously not saying that natural human nature will indulge in all these behaviors all of the time and in the same way. What he's saying is that this is the natural direction of travel. This is the direction in which you're going to be drawn towards. We may not be prone to all of them, but we'll have a weakness for some. And given the right opportunities, we'll go with them. In our minds if not in reality. I mean, you know, I've never been a terribly sort of physical person. Uh, I've never learned how to use my fists. So I tend to avoid getting involved in fights because I'm pretty sure that um, I probably won't end well. Doesn't mean to say that sometimes in my mind I wouldn't like to. And, and that's the thing about the way in which the flesh leads us. Yeah, we may not end up doing it in reality, but we may wish we could. And we may feel that we would like to. And we may fantasize about it and dwell on it. And the attitude, if not the action, actually becomes 
more part of us than is actually good for us. And maybe we do get the opportunity to turn some of these things in reality. Happenstance works like that way. So, yeah, we may congratulate ourselves rightly that, no, some of these things we haven't got round to doing yet. And some of these things, yeah, we may not feel particularly inclined to do them and congratulate them on ourselves on that. But what about the rest? And that's what Paul's getting at. He's getting at this idea that there's a direction of travel, there's a natural inclination, and that's what our natural human sinful nature, the flesh, that's where it's taking us. Neither is Paul saying that, uh, you know, in our natural human nature, we may not have good intentions. Of course we have good intentions. The trouble is that sometimes even our best intentions can nevertheless be distorted by our less worthy inclinations. But if you read on, you'll see that verse 6 is even stronger and speaks of the mind governed by the flesh as being deaf. In other words, it's got no future. And perhaps verses 7 and 8 explain why. You'll see that there Paul says, the mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. It can't submit to God's law. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. What does this add up to? Can I suggest that it adds up to helplessness and hopelessness? Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. Uh, We cannot submit to God's law. We just can't do it. We're helpless, and because we're helpless, we're out without hope. Death is a good word to describe the situation we find ourselves in if we're putting our hope in the flesh. What was the phrase I used earlier? The desire to live independently of God. Instead of trusting in God, we trust in ourselves. Now, some of this may sound a little familiar. I mean, after all, if you've been listening to this series of sermons over the last few weeks, uh, you may feel that we've been here already. We've done that. We've got the T-shirt. Why is Paul repeating himself? Why is he covering old ground? Well, can I suggest to you that he is repeating this uh, because it's important. And whenever something is important, people tend to stress its importance by repeating themselves. And I believe that this is important for two reasons. The first of all is that Paul is presenting a very stark set of binary options. In chapter 6, there were only two masters, sin or righteousness. Here there are only two ways to live, according to the flesh or according to the spirit. In a moment, we'll see that there are only two realms in which we can operate, the realm of the flesh or the realm of the spirit. The trouble is that we constantly look for a third option. We constantly say there must be a middle way. There must be some path which we can follow which will actually, well, be a bit of this and a bit of that. Because, you know, there are some aspects of the flesh that, well, I'm quite attached to and I'd like to hang on to, thank you very much. And what Paul is emphasizing is that there is no compromise There is no middle way between the way of sin and the way of righteousness, the way of the flesh and the way of the spirit. But I think the second reason why he he treads over this familiar territory is because you'll have noticed that in verses 5 to to 8, as well as setting out what happens when our mind is governed by the natural sinful nature, he also wants us to see that there is an alternative. 
Natural sinful nature may be death. But the good news is, you don't have, if you've put your trust in Jesus, you don't need to go there. Yes, the flesh is drawing you in one direction, but you don't need to go there. You can go in a different direction. And that's what Paul wants us to see. This letter was written to members of a church, the church in Rome, men and women who'd already put their trust in Jesus, and they were not necessarily going the way of the flesh. All the places that the flesh, sinful, natural human nature takes us, well, that was no longer their natural destination. And that's true for those of us here this morning who've put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't need to go there anyway, anywhere. You see, in the second half of our reading, Paul tells us that when we become a Christian, when we put our faith in Jesus, it's not just a matter of being forgiven by God, of there being no condemnation. As well as receiving forgiveness, we've become different people. Something fundamentally has changed inside us. And it's this that gives us reason to have a positive and an optimistic attitude to the battle that each one of us has with sin in our lives. You'll have noticed that Paul describes this change in a couple of ways. For instance, in verse 9, right at the beginning, Paul tells us that we're in a new and a better place. Christians are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the spirit. Now, I don't suppose we use the word realm all that often these days, but the word realm is essentially a political term. It refers, it's, it refers to the idea that um, a king rules over a country, over a territory, over a geographical space. And this area that he rules over is his realm. An area where he makes the laws, where her, his word rules where he has control of what actually happens within that geographical area. In medieval times, for instance, when you were in England, you were in the realm of whoever happened to be the king of England. And his laws, his ways, his control, you had to live within the framework that he set out for you. If the king of England happened to be a good ruler, well, perhaps that was good news. But if he was a bad ruler, if he wasn't concerned for the welfare of his subjects, that was bad news. But if you moved to Spain, for instance, you were in a new realm. Nobody paid any attention to what the king of England had to say in Spain. They had their own king, the king of Spain. And he had a different idea about how Spain should be governed from England, a different set of laws, a different way of doing things, a different way of imposing control. You'd moved from the realm of one king into the realm of another. And things were different. And maybe they were better. The weather was probably better. Maybe they were worse. Who knows? And that's what happened to Christians. We are no longer subjects of the flesh. We don't need to follow its lead. We've moved to a different kingdom. And the flesh, natural human sinful nature, no longer has a claim on us. We're no longer its subjects. We're not tied to its suggestions or demands. We're in a new kingdom. We're in a better place. But it's more than just moving from one realm to another. We also have a new force working within us. Look again with me at chapter, at verse 9, and this time the second half of the verse. Christians are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, 
they do not belong to Christ. The term spirit, spirit of God and spirit of Christ are all different phrases used to refer to the Holy Spirit. And please don't be confused by that phrase, if indeed the spirit of God lives in you. Paul isn't suggesting that if you're a Christian, well, maybe you have the spirit living in you and maybe you don't. He's not suggesting that it's it's an ambiguous situation. Some Christians have the spirit living in them. Some of them, well, they haven't got that far and they don't. No, he's not saying that at all. You only need to read the next sentence to actually see that that's not what Paul is saying. Because in the next sentence he says, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. What he's saying here is that these three ideas are inextricably linked. You're in the realm of the spirit... If the Spirit of God lives you, lives in you, if you don't have the Spirit of Christ in you, you're not a Christian. And none of the benefits that go with it apply to you. You don't have one without the other. If you've put your faith in Christ, you have God's Spirit in you. And you have moved from the realm of the flesh, the forces of your old nature, into a new realm, the realm of the Spirit. What do you get when you commit your life to Christ? You get the Holy Spirit. And God's nature now becomes part of your total makeup. And you will see that the spirit of the, the presence of the Spirit in each one of us makes a difference. It's not a passive presence, but powerful and active. Verse 10 tells us, The Spirit gives life because of righteousness, while verse 11 speaks of the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. If he's living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of the Spirit who lives in you. The Spirit is doing major and significant things within us. Now, in one sense, both these verses look forward. In verse 10, the spirit gives life rather than death. We're no longer subject to death because of sin. We can face the future with confidence, while verse 11 draws a parallel between the work of the spirit in raising Jesus from the dead after his crucifixion with the promise that after death, believers in the Lord Jesus Christ will also know resurrection and renewed bodies. But I don't believe these verses are just about the future. If the Spirit can do all this for us now, do all this for us in the future, what can he do for us now? If the Spirit brings the assurance of life in eternity, what can he do to bring fuller life in the here and now? If the Spirit can give life to our mortal bodies in the future, what can he do to strengthen us as we struggle with the day-to-day struggle to live for him now? These are promises for this week, as well as for the end of time. A promise for our work, our home, our neighborhood, our family, as well as a promise for heaven. And I guess this brings us to the question of what the Holy Spirit seeks to do in our lives right now. And so as we close, let's just take a moment or two, well, maybe a moment, to remind ourselves of of where the Spirit wants to lead us. 
Paul explores some of these ideas in verses from verse 12 onwards in chapter 8. And while I don't want to preach next Sunday's sermon, uh, you can see, for instance, in the section from verse 14, that the Spirit wants to lead us to see ourselves as members of God's family and realize that our relationship with God with through Jesus is very different from our relationship with our old way of life and to help us, to encourage us to live our lives in the light of that truth. Or from verse 26, for instance, we, we learn that the Spirit wants to lead us to pray when we do 24-7 or at some other time uh, with freedom and with confidence. But in the passage we're looking at this morning, we can see some of the directions as well that the Spirit wants to lead us in. The characteristics he wants us to help us develop in our lives. We don't need to follow the desires of the flesh because the Spirit wants to lead us in a so much better direction. If you go back to the first half of our reading, you will see that the Spirit wants to set our minds on the things that he desires Now, once more, Paul does not spell out what this means in detail. But again, if we go back to that section of Galatians 5 I mentioned earlier, um, you'll see that Paul goes on to contrast the works of the flesh with what he describes as the fruit of the Spirit, the result of the Spirit's work in our lives. And he's talking about things like love and joy and peace and forbearance and kindness, and goodness, and faithfulness, and gentleness, and self-control. That's where the Holy Spirit wants to lead us. The characteristics that he wants to develop in our lives. The Spirit wants to lead us, as it's put in verses, verse 6, to the experience of life and of peace. A place where hostility towards God is replaced with harmony with God. Where our will is aligned with God's good will for our lives. The Spirit seeks to lead us to pursue a different agenda from the one that our sinful nature would seek us to follow. I suppose one of the risks of thinking about a passage like this and perhaps preaching a passage like this is that it can leave us feel more worried and perhaps more guilty than we do already. Worried because our old sinful nature still seems to be more dominant than we feel it ought to be. Feeling guilty about how little the fruit of the Spirit seems to flourish in our lives. But you know, I don't believe that's the message that Paul wants us to take away from this passage. I really, really don't. Paul didn't write this to make us feel miserable. He wrote it to open our eyes to the possibilities that lie before us now that we have the Spirit of God within us. He didn't want us to focus on the bad stuff. He wanted to realize that there is good stuff available for us and that the Spirit given by God is within us to actually help us get there. To help us see the possibilities, to be optimistic and positive as we face the challenges of every day. If we have the Spirit in us, if we've put our faith in Jesus, we can be confident that he is. Then we can follow the Spirit's lead and expect change for the better in our lives. But you know, we were talking earlier about those two realms. 
and I was suggesting, you know, you know, you, you could imagine in medieval times moving from the realm of England to the realm of Spain. How much sense would it make if you moved from one realm to the other and continued to observe all the laws and regulations and expectations and everything else of the place you'd left? How much sense would that make? And perhaps one of the reasons why we don't make as much progress as we would like to as we seek to live the kind of way in which we know God wants us to live is, yes, we've, we've moved into the realm of the spirit, but we're still following the old rules, the old way of doing stuff, the old inclinations. I once listened to a management guru who was asked the question, what makes a leader? And he said, there's only one thing that makes a leader, followers. Otherwise, the leader is just going for a walk all by themselves. And yes, the spirit is within us. There's a new force within us, a force that wants to develop all those positive fruits in our lives. But if we've got to get the benefit of that, we need to realize that if you've moved into a new realm, you actually need to follow the framework of that new realm and leave the framework of the old realm behind you. If the Spirit wants to lead you into good places, you need to follow the Spirit. Not hark back to all that stuff that was over there in your former life and that goes with your your former nature. Let's pray that God would give us the help to do that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for all the wonderful things that you have done, not just for us, but that you want to do within us. Thank you that we are forgiven from our sins if we've put our trust in your Son. And Heavenly Father, thank you that if that has happened, your Spirit is within us. And thank you for all the positive things that the Spirit wants to do in our lives. Heavenly Father, thank you for all these good things. Help us to realize it. Help us to believe it. Help us to know it. And as the Spirit leads us, help us to follow his lead. Amen.